All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to the show and making this the number one show on the Voice America uh, business channel. And I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour of today's show. They are Crocodile Gold, Gold Bullion Development. North Atlantic Resources, Barkerville Gold, Great Panther Resources, and Mill Rock Resources. Well, I'm really pleased to have uh, with me a friend, Dr. John Mark Stoddy of Riverside Resources. Uh, John Mark is an experienced geologist. There are quite a few experienced geologists in Canada and around the world, but I think what makes John Mark unique is that he is also an entrepreneur. He thinks like a businessman. You know, many geologists are curious about what is underneath the Earth's surface. I mean, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Uh, trying to figure out the secrets that Mother Nature has hidden from us. Where are those diamonds? Where is that gold, that silver, that copper, those valuable, uh, those va- valuable commodities that we need, the oil and gas and so forth? And so there is a, a natural uh, a curiosity on the part of, of uh, geologists to, to drill, to explore, but it's very, very expensive. And you can uh, one of the biggest risks that the junior mining uh, company shareholders face is uh, is dilution. Companies have to constantly raise money. They don't have cash flow. Most of them don't. Uh, and so they have to go out and continually sell shares. And if you're an early investor in a company like that, you know, you might have great hopes, but then nothing happens. And all you find out is that there's so many shares that your shares are never going to be worth much of anything. Well, there is a, a different model, and we're going to talk to John Mark Stoudy about that. John Mark is, as I say, is an entrepreneur as well as a geologist, uh, and he's also a shareholder of Riverside Resources. So Riverside Resources is, uh, trades uh, is about 24.7 million shares outstanding, uh, about 30 million fully diluted. It's recently selling at about 98 cents or thereabouts. Gives it a market cap of $24 million. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, in any event, uh, welcome, John Mark, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay, and it's wonderful to be on your show. <coughs> Well, really good to have you. I'm sorry. I apologize for my barking. I have a, a cold that I'm working through here. Um, yeah, John Mark, you, uh, as I say, you've held, talk to us a little bit about your business model. Tell our listeners how you've managed to keep the number of shares at a minimum. Well, Riverside's business model, if you go to our website, you can see our uh, corporate presentation, simply is that we want to own the properties and do joint ventures with other people that can share the risk with us to make a discovery. By doing that, our shareholders and our company owns quite a few properties. At this point, we own 16 different assets. Each one of those properties moves ahead with other people earning into them, spending the money while we own the property. This is called a joint venture or prospect generator business model. Well, you've, uh, how many different partners do you have now, John Mark? Riverside's quite lucky. We actually have six different projects under partnership with four different partners. The key partners include Cliffs Natural Resources Group. We also have Geologics. We also really enjoy our new IPO with Guerrero Exploration, and we're really having a lot of fun with the work that we're doing now uh, with, after the Kinross portfolio that we've been able to generate. So we have a good, solid team of properties. You have a solid team of properties, and if I'm not wrong, there are even quarters when you're actually showing a profit or when you're making money or when you have at least positive cash flow. 
we, we have positive cash flow. We, it, it's difficult to do it on the full on a quarter. We do show it on a monthly basis. We are a junior exploration company, and we do continually drill. By drilling, we do spend the money, so we do go down. But the trick that we've been able to do is to really limit our dilution by doing joint ventures and by being sparing and focused in our drill programs. We have targeted drill programs, but we don't drill excessively, and we make sure that we have other people spending a lot of the money. We do the cheap work up front and then find other people to do the heavy lifting and expensive work. But we know overall it's highly risky to try to become a miner ourselves. Why not mm-hmm. find a partner early on rather than putting all the money in and being so risky later on? It's very difficult to get deals done as they get more expensive. Riverside, we get deals done rapidly and own the properties. That's really a different way of doing it. John Mark, you are a major shareholder of the company, which always gives me comfort as a shareholder of your company and any company I own. I like to know that the interests of the people making the decisions are aligned with mine as a shareholder. So you are a major shareholder. You also have some other impressive major shareholders. Would you like to tell our listeners uh, who they are? We do. We try to be very open with that. So everything is always filed on SETI, on CDAR, the two different exchange things. And so everyone can see that also on our corporate presentations. We have over 30% of our stock tied in close hands. The management owns 8%. Myself, I own 4%. We continue to buy in the market and support and believe in what we're doing. As well, Kinross Gold owns a, a big chunk. Lundin Mining owns a lot. So does Cleveland Cliffs, Cliffs International, and a gentleman, Rick Rule, is another major holder. We're very excited to have owners, and we try to operate as owners. I think that's the big difference, Jay. We treat the shares as though they're our own because they are. We're really putting our own money into this, and so, therefore, we've not taken on the large dilution that many other companies. We traded a dollar. We think we should be able to go grow from there quite substantially because we do only have fewer than 25 million shares issued. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's that's exactly the point. I mean, you're saying you're at about a dollar with a market cap of of twenty four, twenty five million dollars, which is just really, really, really low. Now, you had mentioned to me before we went on the air. I think that somebody had done an independent uh, analysis of your assets and suggested that uh, that the stock could justifiably be trading. Um, by a factor of two. Yeah, it can be higher. And and the reason it can be higher is we have, not only do we have cash, and as you said, we have the income, which is quite good. (laughs) The second thing is we have shares in other companies that we've, because of the deals, and as these deals go along and as the market has gone up, it's made quite profitable for us. The third part of it is the asset we have in the major gold resource of Sugarloaf Peak. It's a historic resource. It's not compliant, but it's a very large gold body. And Jay, you came out and visited, and that was a lot of fun to take yeah. you out to the site. And we took some pictures, and I think it showed in your newsletter, but we appreciated your taking the time to come out to site. And your coming out to site makes a really big impact for everyone where people can see it. And we saw guys out panning gold right off the surface of that project. Well, that asset alone, in general market terms, should be the value of our market cap. Also, we've developed a portfolio in Durango. Again, that portfolio is the equivalent of our market cap. And then lastly, we have the drill projects. These drill projects we have are drill ready, and we announced just the other day that we were going to turn to drilling, and our stock price rapidly moved up and then settled down uh, for a bit of a, a going upward. But fundamentally, by drilling the high-grade silver and gold assets of Riverside, the properties that we have, those are equivalent to our market cap. So we see three or four times what would be generally seen as a market cap of $25 million in the different components to Riverside. So the next three months, we look forward to unlocking the value in deals and exploration, and we definitely see over this year, 2011, quite a bit of growth. Your Sugarloaf Peak project that you mentioned, I was out there, uh, that would be a project that many junior mining companies would be looking to raise capital and drilling. Uh, I guess you're looking for a partner. Is there, are there any prospects of, of somebody coming along and, and starting to drill that out more, more uh, aggressively? We, we, can't, we don't want to put anything into the market that's predetermined. All we do is put out final news when we actually have a definitive agreement. But sure. I was in uh, Phoenix on uh, 
Thursday, so uh, coming back home. So, yeah, definitely down there on site, progressing the project and uh, doing different work on it. So we our business model is to be working on deals, and so you can count on us doing that day in, day out, night. And secondly, you'll see that that asset is a very nice asset. So in this market, if you could get a chance for one to four million ounces of open pit gold. People would love to have it. So that's in mm-hmm. the Riverside portfolio, and if you became a shareholder, if people become bigger shareholders in Riverside right now, you'd be part of that large gold resource, and we're working to structure a deal. Either Riverside does the drilling, but most likely we'll find a partner, put it into a new company that that's the lead asset on. Riverside alone, quite a bit of that new company, getting shares plus cash, and probably do the technical work. So we'll get the upside, limit our downside, and continue to grow. And that'll make us, if there is a big hit there, Riverside share price can go up quite a bit, and we'll own that asset. Because we have so many other assets, it really makes unlocking the value for Sugarloaf Peak happen instantly rather than over a longer period of time. Okay, John Mark, we're just about out of time here. I want to ask you, you have the Pignoli's silver deposit or silver project that you're really high on, and you have a gold project in Mexico. we got 30 seconds or so. Talk to us a little bit about those two projects. Buying on Riverside right now would be good if you like silver. Pignoli's is the high-grade silver. It's the place that was some of the highest-grade silver, longest mining of Mexico. We're going to drill it. Tajitos is open pit gold. Riverside owns it 100%. A second major asset, 2011, open pit gold in Riverside is a great reason to own Riverside stock. Well, I, I will leave it at that, John Mark, because we are out of time. I really thank you for coming on and talking to us. This is a story that I like. I own the shares for full disclosure. I must tell the listeners that it is a recommendation in my newsletter. I do have it in my retirement account. I, I, I really trust John Mark will look out uh, for my interest. And it's not saying that it is any sure thing in life, but I, I would tell you that this kind of a model is probably the best uh, risk-reward model that you're going to find in the junior sector. And then if you have somebody who's really conscientious about employing that model and not deviating from it, uh, and then using all the good knowledge and uh, sense that this man has picked up over the years as an exploration geologist for large mining companies in this part of the world, uh, it's really a recipe, I think, for success. That's why I'm very, very bullish on Riverside Resources. Folks, don't go away. We're going to come right back. You know, another metal that's doing extremely well these days and starting to pick up again is uranium. So we're going to be right back at the turn of the uh, after their commercial break with Gil Schneider of Athabasca Uranium. It's a company that's looking for uranium uh, in some of the elephant, well, really in the elephant country of Saskatchewan. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Mr. Schneider. up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. 
Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green-tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by voice america business network the bottom line in business welcome to the human race some kind of love and ride i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down try not to try to You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Oh, oh, okay. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Um, you know, gold has been on a tear for sure. It's been up 10 straight years. But another yellow metal that is looking really, really good uh, is uranium. And so I'm really pleased to have with me Gil Schneider again uh, for the second time in a number of weeks. He is the president and CEO of Athabasca Uranium, a company that's looking for uranium in elephant country. That's in uh, uh, in the in Canada, uh, in Saskatchewan, actually. So uh, we're really pleased to have you, Gil. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay, for inviting me back in. Uh, just uh, to uh, piggyback on what you've uh, just said, I'm looking at a report by the Casey Energy team, and uh, they. Uh, mentioned how uranium didn't outperform gold in 2010, and they quote that gold started out at uh, $1,121 per ounce, ended up at uh, 1405 with a gain of uh, 25%. But if you look at uranium, it started out at about $40 a pound at the end of the year, and now uh, today has actually climbed up to $68 a pound, and uh, that's a, a gain of just about 40%. Uh, yeah. So, um, that this we believe we're in a, the right space at the right time. Well, Gil, a couple of years ago we saw a nice run in the in the uranium price, and then after you know uh, maybe uranium got soft actually before the Lehman Brothers decline. With the Lehman Brothers decline, everything went down. Commodity prices went down very substantially. Uh, what um, you know? Do you think this run is for real this time? What, you know, we had the oh. we, we actually commodity markets came back. But the uranium price remained weak for the longest time. Um, you know, you have the specter of uranium overhang from governments uh, selling the, the metal. Uh, I don't know. What are, you, what are your thoughts? What is? Are we in a long-term bull market for uranium now? I, I believe they, we are, uh, because the same report by the Casey Energy team talks about that. That the uh, by 2013, uh, the government uh, supplies of uranium will expire. And uh, quotes, uh, for example, China will need, by 2030, they'll need 95 million pounds of uranium annually alone. And uh, in 2009, the entire world produced just under 112 million pounds. So you can see that the demand is uh, rising. Uh, China's not the only 
country that's going to be uh, requiring such a large demand to India, even the United States. I know that the United States has uh, produces at this point in time something like 4 million pounds of uranium a year, and we produce or we consume 55 million pounds of uranium a year. And that, uh, and as you say, China is growing and, and building uh, nuclear power plants very rapidly. So it, it does sort of seem like ultimately the price of uranium has to rise. Uh, the question is, and you're, you're saying you think that this time it, it may be for real, that we may not look back at $30 uranium anytime soon. Uh, we, don't, we don't think so for sure. Uh, in this same report talks that the price of $70 per pound is, uh, is probably what's predicted. Uh, we're at 68 now, so I would uh, predict that we would be uh, higher than that uh, in a very short time. Uh, which leads us to 100% of the uranium produced out of Canada is in the Athabasca Basin, and uh, that's where we've chosen uh, to locate our properties. Uh, once again, uh, the, for example, uh, today Hather Explorations issued a news release of a very aggressive drill program, and when you look at our uh, presentation on, on our website, and uh, I would encourage a, a listener to uh, go to our website at athabascauranium.com uh, um, and just take a look at our presentation. Uh, the properties that we have, particularly the McGregor Lake property, is located, it butts right up against the, the Hather properties that they're uh, uh, expounding in their news release today. Uh, and, and what's uh, very important, I think, is that when I look at the exploration program that Hather is uh, is announcing uh, we're we're doing exactly the same exploration program as as they are doing, and we're in the midst of ours right now. We're about 30% through the uh, the ZTEM uh, flyover that we described in our last uh, radio interview. Uh, we were hampered a little bit by weather, but uh, we're back on now, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, finishing the the ZTEM and then going into the magnetotelluric uh, ground survey as well. And that's exactly the, the the procedure that Hather has explained in their news release, too. These are highly technical uh, terms, Gil. I don't know if you could tell for our lay listeners, and that would include me, uh, what, what you're doing with these, uh, with these technologies. How does it help you well, pinpoint? Are you looking for structure or what? Well, that, that's exactly what we're looking for. But the, the intent is, is that you use a, a number and a, a wide range of data uh, from a different type of uh, exploration techniques, uh, mm -hmm. And then you overlay these and uh, build a, uh, a a model of uh, the structure below the ground. And, and what you're always looking for is a structure that's similar to existing discoveries. Even Hather has announced that in the past as well, that they are looking at their, their new uh, exploration projects and then compare them to their discovery project and some of the discoveries that uh, have been made by Denison and uh, Cameco and try to see, do these, uh, does this data simulate uh, the discoveries? And we believe that some of the initial exploration data that we have acquired actually does that. So we're very excited about that uh, moving forward and moving into uh, a, a drill program in the fall. Uh, Gil, what do you know? So you've identified, you've got drill, drill targets. So what, how deep is your target? Because I think sometimes... Some of these incredibly rich, and I want to get to this, you know, the, the value of this, uh, of, of some of these deposits, but some of these incredibly rich uranium deposits are fairly deep, and they bring with them a lot of uh, engineering challenges when you put them into production. Can you talk to our listeners about the depth of the targets that you're looking at? Well, well we, yeah, at this point, we haven't identified the drill targets yet. However, mm. uh, the location of our properties, and we've purposefully located our properties on what's called the outer trend. There, there are two trends uh, that are going um, uh, northeast. Uh, and if you start at the Key Lake Mine and go northeast, in fact, Hathor's exploration uh, uh, news release talks about uh, that as well, uh, how the trends uh, head up on, north, on a northeasterly direction. So we've chosen to be on, on the outer trend. The, the outer trend is where the discoveries have been more shallow, so this allows for open, uh, open pit mining or uh, surface mining. Uh, for example, the, the Key Lake mine uh, was only 60 meters deep, and, and the Moore Lake discovery is about 200 meters deep. And as we head further northeast, 
along the same trend that we are located in is the West Bear Mine, which is the, the largest uh, surface mine in the basin today. Uh, so we, we've purposefully located on the outer trend where the shallower discoveries have been made. And that's how uh, we believe that that facilitates uh, putting a mine into production uh, much quicker and at less cost. Uh, Gil, if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about the Athabasca Basin and some of those deposits. Uh, give us a sense of what some of these rich deposits are worth on a per ton basis. And how do they compare then with gold mines, for example, with very high-grade gold mines? Well, I've, I've not um, done that, but um, it's been said that the, the chemical mine, the MacArthur River mine in uh, the Athabasca Basin is... Uh, possibly the richest mine in the world. I think it has uh, 200 million pounds uh, of, of uranium, but it's very important when you talk about the poundage is the uh, concentration levels because you can have uh, a large uh, amount of pounds in the ground, but uh, if your concentration levels is 0 0.024, as it is in um, a, a very large mine in uh, South Africa, uh, to uh, 200 million pounds uh, in the Athabasca Basin at MacArthur River Mine at uh, a 20% uh, plus average, you can see the, the difference in the value uh, of the ore. So, um, yes, the uh, ore bodies or the ore in the Athabasca Basin is uh, more difficult and challenging to find, but we believe that with a, uh, a, a tried-and-true exploration pattern that is uh, produced success in the past for companies like Cameco, Hather, and Denison, uh, that we have um, a very good chance of um, hitting a very large ore body there, too. And so that, that makes our our opportunity such so much more exciting. Uh, well, Gil, you know, really it, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say what really makes uh, this opportunity exciting, I think, is, is the, I quoted from the uh, the energy report uh, earlier, and it talked about with the, the price of uranium performing so well that companies like Denison uh, uh, produced a 267% gain in 13 months, and also uh, a company like JNR, 166% gain uh, within uh, about eight months. So where we are trading now at 27 cents, you can imagine what the type of gain that, that we're able to uh, offer to our investors uh, when we start seeing some positive results in our exploration programs. Yeah, I might just mention that you only have, a, I believe, 32 million shares or so outstanding. Is that right, Gail? Yeah, that's right. That's on, on a so, basic uh, basis. But what's, so, what's really important to many investors is liquidity. And our, our stock has a good liquidity to it. Um, we've traded uh, over 16 million shares uh, since we began trading in July. Um, most of our, uh, our, our initial uh, funding shares, I think, are uh, already out there. Those folks that came in early with us have made a, a handsome gain. And uh, now we've got uh, our baseline is in around uh, 26 cents. Uh, and so we look forward to the future as being a, a, a very great opportunity. Uh, Gil, um, just to give us an idea, when do you expect to start drilling? Well, the the idea is to follow the success pattern of others, including Hather and Cameco and Denison. And so we believe that uh, our serious drill program will begin in the fall. Uh, because we want to do as much initial exploration as we can to uh, help us identify uh, the drill targets uh, with the best opportunity of success. Well, we're certainly looking forward to it. I think that this is the kind of stock, obviously, if you hit, uh, if you hit on some good drill intercepts, um, with such a minuscule market cap, uh, your shares could be off to the races uh, big time. You know, I like to tell my my subscribers, uh, that they shouldn't put all their eggs into one basket. I mean, that's not me saying, that's an old wives. That's really something that people have been saying forever. Uh, but, you know, if you have, say, 5% of your portfolio in a stock like yours and you guys really come through with, a, with a, some major drill results, I think uh, people would obviously be very, very happy and see their overall portfolio affected in a positive way. Uh, Gil, it's really been a pleasure. We're out of time, unfortunately. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we... Uh, before we conclude well, our did. discussion, this time. well, I just want to want to reiterate our, our vision. Our vision is to become a very significant player uh, in the uranium sphere. Uh, we're out 
busy uh, uh, identifying additional uh, acquisitions. Uh, we believe that we'll be able to make some announcements uh, really quite soon that would uh, increase our, our property portfolio. Uh, again, we're looking at uh, properties that are very well located, uh, that are located in uh, close proximity to existing mines. And if you look at our PowerPoint presentation, you'll see that all of our properties are surrounded by claims for Cameco, Denison, Hather. These are well-placed claims, well-placed projects uh, that have every bit as uh, good opportunity of success as uh, the, the Hathers and the, and the Cameco's and Denison's have achieved. Very good, Gil. Thank you so much. We're really out of time, unfortunately. I, I will be watching your your stock, your company, and uh, look for press releases as we go forward into the into the days and weeks ahead. Thank you very much, folks. Don't go away. Thank We're going to be right back with uh, with Klaus Boat. He is the uh, contrarian investor. He is a guy that's written a very important book called The Global Debt Trap. Uh, you won't want to miss Klaus Boat. So don't go away. We'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Western Pacific is a gold exploration company focused on finding major world-class deposits in the western United States. Western's Ace in the Hole, a project called Mineral Gulch, lies along trend with the Carlin-style Long Canyon deposit, recently acquired by Frontier Development. Catalysts going forward will be from drill results. One drill campaign is underway at the South Lita Project in Nevada, with permitting underway to drill 33 holes at Mineral Gulch. Western Pacific trades on the Venture Exchange under the ticker WRP. Solid and Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year highlighting a very positive and economical project and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.solidan.com to learn more. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me Klaus Vogt. He is the author of the new book called The Global Debt Trap. Uh, and he is also an editor of Scheisser's Geld. That's the first and largest circulation contrarian investment letter in Europe. 
Although the publication is based on Martin Weiss's uh, safe money, Mr. Vogt has provided new independent insights and amazingly accurate forecasts that in turn have contributed great value to safe money. That's uh, Martin Weiss's uh, publication. He is also the editor of the German edition of Weiss Research International ETF Trader, which has delivered overall gains, including losers, um, in the last high double digits, and in, in the high double digits, I should say. Mr. Vogt is the co-author of the German bestseller Das Greenspan Dossier, um, where he predicted well ahead of time the sequence of events that have unfolded since, including the U.S. housing bust, the U.S. recession, the demise of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and the financial system crisis. In addition to being the editor of Million Dollar Contrarian Portfolio, um, he, his analysis and insights appear regularly in Money and Markets, and that's where I've learned to know Klaus Vogt and enjoy very much, uh, very much his, uh, his weekly commentary uh, through that uh, Money and Markets, uh, a Weiss publication. Well, welcome, Klaus, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Yes, hi. Good uh, evening, Jay, and thank you very much for this uh, very polite and nice introduction. Well, thank you very much for uh, for coming to us from Germany. I guess we're looking at probably ten uh, what, uh, ten o'clock over in Germany or something like that. That's correct, uh, around or 10 less. PM, yeah. So, so thank you so much for uh, for your patience and coming to talk to us. Uh, your, your book, the um, the global debt trap, uh, how to escape the danger and build a fortune. Of course, that's what we want to do. Uh, we want to do our our show, turning hard times into good times, is. Yeah. premised on the notion that if you really understand what is going on, not necessarily what the major media is telling you is going on, but if you can really get underneath the hood and understand and see how the engine works, what's driving the markets, uh, and predict ahead of time, as you apparently have been able to do, uh, that we can not only protect ourselves, but possibly even build wealth and, and gain in our, uh, our earthly well-being. But let me ask you, uh, why you mentioned in your book that the death that the debt trap was predictable. Why so? Uh, well, let me give you four reasons why I think we were able, like a few others uh, were in the U.S. as well as in Europe, to uh, predict uh, uh, this huge crisis and uh, especially uh, the debt version of this crisis. Uh, number one, I think, is uh, the willingness uh, to swim really against the to be dedicated contrarian uh, mm -hmm. and not falling in love with the mainstream thinking. Uh, mm -hmm. Reason number two uh, is uh, we have no conflicts of interests. This may sound uh, strange, but, uh, uh, well, I think that's an important reason because, mm -hmm. uh, well, working at Wall Street usually goes with uh, conflicts of interest, and mm -hmm. uh, most uh, economists are, well, uh, consulting in the consulting business, in the uh, policy consulting business, which also bears conflicts of interest. Uh, number three, of course, you need a deep knowledge of financial history. You have to look back, not just uh, uh, back to the last cycle, uh, but maybe back to, uh, well, the last huge crisis which appeared. You may be able to know history, which is uh, uh, really old history, but uh, things uh, uh, turn around and uh, used to come back. And uh, fourth, uh, we are not uh, Keynesian economists, uh, but uh, we are Austrian economist, mm -hmm, which, mm -hmm. which means we, we adhere to a, a, a very different theory. And knowing this theory was essential to realizing what was going wrong here, wrong at least since the second half of the 1990s when the tech bubble emerged. <coughs> well, let's define a debt trap. What is a debt trap? Well, a debt trap is a uh, situation uh, when governments have accumulated a debt load uh, which is unbearable, uh, which cannot be um, serviced and paid back anymore. We have used the stage 
of a situation, of a, of a dead trap stage, when there are no easy ways out anymore. That makes our current situation, um, um, well, so, well, let's say difficult at best. Mm -hmm. You uh, mentioned the need to look back at history um, and and not just a couple of cycles, but to be able to see long-term history. And we've had several people on our show that are able to do that. Uh, a fellow named Ian Gordon, who's studied Kondratiev cycles and actually has yeah. gone out, found data that, that to reconstruct the 60-70 year cycle. We've had Robert Prechter on this show as well. Other people. And to me, that's something that most people don't have, is this grasp of history. Well, let me ask you, though, you said to go back at the last big crisis. When do you think the last huge crisis? Are we talking about the 1930s, perhaps? Yes, unfortunately, yes. I, I really think we can compare what's going on here right now only uh, to what happened in the 1930s. But of course, there are important differences, especially uh, we have a totally different uh, uh, global monetary system right now. Back then, uh, the world was still, at least when the crisis started, on the gold standard. And right now, uh, since 1971, uh, we, we have this uh, unique global economic experiment of uh, totally unbacked fiat currencies uh, all over the world. That's a huge, that's a major difference, and that probably makes for uh, uh, a very different outcome as well. All right, so we had a deflationary outcome then. Are you looking for an inflationary, a hyperinflationary outcome even? I, I, in looking at your book, it seems as though that's probably your thesis, that, that no yes. matter what Bernanke does, no matter what uh, your uh, European Union does, or the, the Chinese or the Japanese do, we're headed for an inflationary uh, outcome, a hyperinflationary outcome even. Is that your, is that your view? Uh, yes, I'm much more inclined to, to, to this view of an inflationary uh, solution, if you want to use this term. And, uh, uh, I have struggled a lot uh, uh, with the arguments of the deflationists, of course, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, we had huge and long discussions uh, uh, Martin Wyeth and myself, my co-author, who is uh, much older than uh, uh, than I am, uh, and myself, uh, to to finally decide which is uh, the most likely outcome. And uh, of course, I am with the deflationists. If if we had a market system, a market-based solution to mm -hmm. the problems, but uh, well, we have not. We have a dedicated inflationary federal reserve and also equally uh, dedicated inflationary European central bank. So uh, uh, the, 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 two, the two major players in terms of monetary policy are, of course, inflationists. And Ben Bernanke just, uh, well, he told everybody uh, uh, what he was thinking about the problem, and he told us uh, years ago, I think it was in 2001, that mm -hmm. the U.S. government had a technology, a printing press, which could mm -hmm. deliver as, as much U.S. dollars as needed, and had that, that, that actually he was the man, the right man, uh, uh, well, to implement this policy, and that's exactly uh, what he did. So he actually uh, he delivered and what, and on, on what he uh, proposed, uh, well, 10 years ago. He certainly has delivered, hasn't he? And just poof, out of thin air, he can create $2 trillion worth of, of money, not wealth, I might add, but money. Money. Uh, you know, and and as, as we talked uh, earlier in the show today, that the Chinese have worked real hard to uh, produce things and export them around the world, and they've accumulated $2.7 in reserves. Well, Mr. Bernanke can go out in a matter of hours and create $2 trillion of claims against those valuable assets. It's likely, it seems to me, to be such an immoral uh, structure, such an immoral system, but uh, morality aside, it's also a system that seemed to be doomed to failure. Would you agree? Yes. Yes, of course I do. But Right now, since we have waited so long to, uh, well, to start facing the problem, 
Yeah, that's the first thing you, you have to do first. You have to realize there is a problem. Uh, only then you can start uh, a discussion how, how to deal with it, uh, that there are no easy ways out anymore. If you, if you look at it, uh, we have only three principal options. And uh, one, of course, is uh, uh, a severe austerity policy. But uh, that's usually what governments do not want to do when they are uh, burdened with huge debt. Uh, they, they do not want to slash expenditures on entitlements and uh, 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 things like that. Yeah, that hurts uh, the voters. So they are looking for other way to deal with it. Uh, the second of these third principal options is, of course, outright default. Uh, but that's also something uh, politicians do not really want, at, at, at least as long uh, the losses um, have to be dealt with uh, the own uh, population or mainly with banks, with insurance companies, with uh, uh, um, domestic institutional investors. It may be, it may be, just a thought of my, it may be a different case here with, uh, this huge uh, uh, um, tre uh, uh, treasury bond holdings the Chinese have accumulated and the Japanese. Uh, also, if you, look, if you look into financial history, you can see that, uh, well, default on commitments to politically weak groups or to foreign creditors aren't that rare in mm -hmm. history. And, of course, the third way is, like you already mentioned, uh, Money printing, and uh, uh, for me, that's uh, first the most convenient way for politicians, and uh, second, our monetary system is geared, and our political system as well, is geared to this money printing solution, and it has one additional um, um, positive, if you think as a politician, uh, feature, uh, it's a little bit difficult. Inflation is not so easy to understand. So as a politician, uh, you can always hope uh, to present uh, the public uh, some scapegoat and, uh, well, just uh, uh, come through with not uh, uh, letting uh, the people know that you are responsible. Maybe you can deliver them a scapegoat and everything turns out uh, fine for you. That's unfortunately the way uh, politics works. Yeah, it is unfortunate. I mean, it is, I think an Austrian economist, as you have pointed out, you are and your, your group is, uh, don't have a problem understanding what, what causes uh, inflation. It's the creation of money. And Milton Friedman seemed to understand that, and only Milton Friedman at the Chicago School wasn't interested in having gold. He wanted the Federal Reserve to be in control of the monetary system. Uh, let me ask you, Klaus, uh, on this issue of inflating this, the debt away, though. Uh, it seems to me so far what's been happening to a great extent in the U.S. is that the money has gone into the system, you know, into the banking system, and hedge funds are getting a hold of it, and it's bidding up commodity prices. But we're not, at least in the U.S., in any meaningful way, not seeing that translate into a growing economy. We're not seeing le new lending being made. I mean, it's very difficult at the lower end of, uh, at least at the retail level, the consumer level, because people are so much in debt, they can't really take on more debt. Yeah. It's, it's not unlike what I read happened in the 1930s in a way. When the Federal Reserve pumped money into the system, uh, the pushing on the string analogy, they couldn't, get, uh, they couldn't get banks to lend it out. So I'm wondering, um, uh, is, it, is it possible that we may be running into the same kind of a problem this time? Uh, certainly, though, we do see prices rising, and we're seeing food riots now in North Africa. We're seeing problems uh, rising food prices, rising commodity prices. We're seeing Wall Street do extremely well right now. They're continuing to get their big bonuses. They were bailed out, of course. Um, but, uh, but, but another line of thought, if, if these guys, uh, if the policymakers were truly Keynesians, they would be looking to get more of this money instead of into the rich bankers' hands. They'd be getting it into the masses of people. They would distribute uh, income to those lower-income people with a 100% propensity to consume. Uh, do you think there's a danger that, that they're missing out, that they may not be successful in inflating this away because of the, 
the approach they're taking. I mean, it seems to me whether it's a Democrat or a Republican in the U.S., they're only really concerned about the bankers first and foremost and about the rich people at the top, whether it's Obama or Bush, makes no difference basically. I mean, the rhetoric mm-hmm. might be different, but also, ultimately the policies are pretty much the same. But do you think there's a possibility that we may be following the same courses in the 1930s in a way in that uh, it's the pushing on the string in the banking system? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, well, yes, yes, uh, to, to, to a degree, uh, it has, it's going on already, but I think uh, we are only in this, uh, well, in, 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 in this special phase of this huge crisis, of this huge and ongoing crisis, and I really think that uh, the next step will be exactly uh, what, what, what you were saying right now, uh, that all these government goodies uh, have to be presented in a uh, in, in, has to be broadened, has to be uh, um, given to uh, huge parts uh, of the population and not just uh, the bankers and the rich. I think that's the next step. Why do I think that? Uh, if you look, again, historically at uh, all these episodes of uh, uh, huge inflations or even hyperinflations, uh, they all have just uh, two things in common. One is uh, what we already mentioned, uh, um, unbacked money, fiat, uh, monetary systems. And the second one is a drastically uh, rising government debt levels. And I really think we have just started uh, on this path. Uh, these 1.345 um trillion of new government debt per year we are just seeing now in the US and well the figures in Europe aren't uh, uh, aren't better by the way uh, is just uh, the beginning i'm quite sure they will follow this way and uh, uh, the government if it is dedicated and i i, I see it the same way as you do that uh, uh, both parties are dedicated they are all doing the very same policy so if Governments are dedicated uh, where they can ramp up uh, um, these debt levels to unbelievable uh, high dimensions, which of course then start to come with higher inflation rates, with accelerating inflation rates. And then maybe Mark Farber is right, and uh, uh, we come to the point where the whole thing uh, gets into what's called hyperinflation. Well, let's hope and pray he's not right, uh, because I think that would be the worst of all outcomes. Klaus, uh, we have only a few minutes left, and I'm really sorry about that, because I've only begun to ask you questions. One of the things I wanted you to talk about, though, briefly, for the education of our listeners, and I think in general, if we have enough time, talk about how money is created in a fiat currency system. Talk about how, in a fractional reserve fiat currency system like we have, how is money created? Can you, can you walk our listeners through that? Uh, well, yes, I think so. The, uh, at, at, at the core of, of the whole system, of course, uh, is uh, the central bank, uh, is uh, the Federal Reserve System in the U.S. And uh, in, in, in general, uh, the Fed has, the central bank uh, has an unbelievable privilege. The Fed uh, can buy uh, well, more or less anything it wants to buy, technically anything it wants to buy, and pay whatever it buys with newly created money, with money that just didn't exist before. And, uh, well, the easiest way then uh, to shortcut, so to say, uh, uh, the, way, uh, the way of creating this new money is, of course, uh, a government which is creating debt and a Federal Reserve Bank, a central bank, which is just buying this newly created debt. So uh, if, 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 you court, if, if you use this, this, this shortcut, uh, you can immediately see that in this case, uh, government is spending money which did not exist before. Yeah, that's the way this newly created money is coming into existence. Of course, uh, normally, in more normal times, uh, there is this banking system uh, in, in between, between 
the government debt and the Federal Reserve is the banking system. Yeah? And the banking system, our current banking system is a fractional reserve banking system, which means uh, our banks um, can lend much more money than they actually um, have in their coffers, mm-hmm. creating new money also out of thin air, uh, uh, like the central bank does. So these are the two principal ways to create money. And, and by the way, if you go back in history, you will also, uh, uh, and that may be surprising, you, you will find that uh, there has always been a discussion whether this fractional reserve banking uh, should be legal or forbidden. Well, it actually was often in former times forbidden, and there have even been uh, ethical discussions about it, also from the Christian side, uh, discussions about the, the ethical meaning, and they came to the conclusion uh, that it's, uh, uh, it's not prudent, that it's actually theft. Yeah, and I think maybe uh, something similar also in the Islamic world as well. There's so much more to talk to you about, Klaus, uh, but I think this is very important, this I- idea of understanding how money is created, because 99% of the population doesn't have a clue about that. But I think it's so, uh, it's so uh, obviously so dishonest, the system that we have. Yeah. You, uh, you, though, uh, are interested, as all of us are, in finding ways to protect ourselves and to actually gain wealth and and we're just we're just out of time we don't have enough time to go into that but the global debt trap has some great ideas and you also have some great ideas uh, that you pass along every week uh, tell our listeners where they can buy the book the the global debt trap and also how they can uh, avail themselves to your to your insight on a weekly basis through Martin Weiss's work could you could you talk to us about that uh, yes I think the easiest way of course uh, uh, to have a look at the book uh, to to uh, to get a, a few reviews or uh, uh, an insight, uh, uh, look at the inside flap is just to to go to the Amazon website and uh, uh, go for it and uh, uh, to to get my regular um, uh, writings. Uh, well, you should just uh, Google Martin Weiss, uh, Weiss's research, and there you will find also these uh, uh, free. Uh, weekly market letters uh, where I am uh, part of the writers and of course also uh, uh, the staff which, 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 which has to be paid for. Well, I know in reading your one recent uh, outlook, a recent uh, missive that you put out, the contrarian viewpoint, you're bearish on, on stocks. I know you're very, very bullish on gold long term and on commodities in general. Am I right on that? Yes, well, yes, that's correct. And uh, right now, uh, I actually had been uh, uh, well, relatively <coughs> bullish, or at least not bearish for stocks during uh, 09 and the first half of uh, 2010. But uh, uh, then I changed back uh, uh, to bearish, which, of course, uh, doesn't mean that the stock market has uh, uh, to go into a bearish mode into the next bear market uh, immediately, uh, but just uh, the risk-reward situation right now and here uh, is just uh, unattractive. Yeah, so okay, for well, I'm sorry. Investor, it's better to stay on the sidelines in times like I'm, this. I'm sorry, Klaus, we don't have more time. I really okay. could go another half hour with you very easily, but I'm very thankful that you came with us you, uh, on our show, and I know people can avail themselves to your insights. I hope they do, because I do. I read the stuff from Martin Weiss on a regular basis, including your work. So thank you very much, uh, Klaus, for being with us. Folks, don't go away because coming up next, Ed Griffin. If you really want to know why the Federal Reserve was created, well, we've re- we're replaying Ed Griffin's March 24th interview with me uh, for you. So you can go back and understand and listen. If you haven't heard this before, Ed Griffin, the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island. Why was the Federal Reserve created? By whom? Who are the players behind the scene? Who are the powers behind the throne that are, uh, that are calling the shots and imp- implementing policies that are damaging our country, enriching themselves? Don't go away. Listen to Ed Griffin right after the break. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Great Panther Silver is a profitable primary silver producer trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol GPR. GPR operates two 100% owned mines in Mexico, has a solid track record of increasing production, and continues to add resources and reserves. GPR has developed an organic growth strategy that will see production increase by more than 65% over the next two years. Great Panther Silver is also generating excitement at its new discovery in Guanajuato and expanding its drill program. Look for GPR on the TSX. 